0: God's Word comes to us this morning from the book of Genesis. We'll begin in chapter 9 verse 18 and we'll continue through the entirety of chapter 10. Genesis 9:18 through 10:32. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. and He drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and make Cain and be his servants. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javon, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Repoth, and Togermah. The sons of Javon were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtica, And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From the land he went. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, kela and Rezin between Nineveh and kela That is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Ammonim, Lehabim, Naphtanim, Arthrasim, and Kazluhim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites went from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, Then, as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebuim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. And children were also born to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brothers of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphixad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphixad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and the brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almodad, Sheleth, Hazar, Marvith, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jokhtan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this Lord's Day, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that we would know through your word what you have done for your people, throughout history, throughout the world. And most of all, in it, we would see the mercy of Jesus Christ and also desire to put our sin to death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at God making a covenant with Noah. Now, at that time, when that covenant was made, after the flood, it seemed for a fleeting moment like perhaps the new world that emerged was going to be a place of peace, of safety, of order, of proper priorities, where the evil that characterized and overwhelmed the old world that resulted in the death of most of the descendants of Adam would resume, that that old world would be gone and that the world would resume living according to the good purposes that God gave at creation. We even saw in that passage a lot of the language of creation being restated, a lot of the same things which God said to Adam, he also said to Noah and his sons, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We hear those things and we can't help but to think back to the garden. But sadly, as we will learn today, expectations that this was going to be a return to the paradise of Eden are misplaced. The world will continue and God will bless it in many ways, but ultimate deliverance has not yet come. There is still a long, hard road ahead to redemption and to salvation for God's people. One might look at where Noah and his family emerged from the ark onto the earth and immediately turning to worship and immediately receiving covenant blessing from God and they might think, okay, the worst is over. All of that wickedness before the flood is gone. And at that moment yet, they stood centuries away from the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Still thousands of years from where we are today, waiting Christ's return, still living in a fallen and sinful world. And it will be through much hardship and strife and apostasy and sorrow that redemption will ultimately come. We also see in this passage something very similar to what we have seen before back in chapter 4 of Genesis. For it was there where Cain murdered his brother Abel, and in doing so introduced a division of lines a division of peoples, a division of cities between those who belong to God and those who belong to the devil, those who belong to the age of this world. And we will now see a very similar division take place in the line of Noah after the flood. In fact, the three points of our sermon this morning will be the same three points as my message on that passage in chapter 4. We see sin. We see it this time in chapter nine verses eighteen through twenty three. One of Noah's sons will commit an egregious act against his father and the rest of his family. And second, we will see a sentence in chapter nine, verses twenty-four through twenty nine. Because of this sin there comes a cursing on that son's line that will again draw this, draw these lines and make this division between the city of God and the city of man in the human race. And third, we see separation in the genealogies of chapter 10. We see how the descendants of Noah divide themselves on the earth, not only among family and social lines, but also along spiritual lines. So again, we have sin, a sentence, and separation. First, we see a sin in verses 24 through 29 of chapter 9. In fact, we actually see two sins. We see one of Noah, and then we see one of Ham, his son. In verses 18 and 19, we see a recollection of which men came out of the ark. We see that Noah came out of the ark along with his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we also see noted here for the first time that <clears throat> Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, this is important for a few different reasons. First, we see that man is seriously regarding God's command to once again be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It does not take very long in our text to once again see the world populated with people. and We see that these sons become nations, and in fact, the fathers of many nations. But this is also important that we hear of Canaan here, because when you think of the word Canaan in the Bible, the first place your mind is probably drawn is not here to Genesis, but to the later struggles by the people of Israel to conquer and to remain in the promised land. They made war against the Canaanites, (laughs) who, as it turns out, are descendants of this Canaan, the son of Ham. The conflict between Israel and Canaan did not just start when Joshua brought the people out of Egypt and went to war with them to take the promised land. It was already by that point an ancient conflict, one that traced itself all the way back to these days of Noah. Now, this does not mean that things are always hostile or there was always warfare with the Canaanites. You might remember just a few weeks ago, we looked at a passage in 1 Samuel and we saw how the Gibeonites, who were a branch of Canaanites, rather than warring with Israel and being destroyed, they found a way to be engrafted in as a part of Israel. But in general, God's people will not find peace with the Canaanites. They will be their enemies. And that conflict begins with what unfolds in this passage today. Now in verse 20, we see another aspect of the dominion mandate that God gave to Adam and then regave to Noah after the flood, the command to subdue and rule over the earth. We see that Noah, even as the elder, the patriarch, he would be an older man by this time, 600 years of the 950 he would live. He does his part. He takes to farming. Now as a part of his farming, he plants a vineyard. He plants grapes, which are to be made into wine. Now, this itself is a legitimate pursuit. It is a purpose consistent with that dominion mandate. But the problem is in what comes next. In verse 21, we read that Noah drank of his wine until he was drunk. He took too much. He partook intemperately of the blessings of the fruit of the ground that God had given him. From very early in this recreation after the flood, we see abuse and misuse of God's good gifts. Noah sins against God by drinking to drunkenness. He loses control of his mind and of his body and such that we read he becomes uncovered in his tent. He enters into a humiliating and compromising and dishonoring situation. Now this text serves as a warning, among other things, of the folly and the stupor that comes with drunkenness. People who are drunk are not in control of themselves. Though they might feel like they are happy, they might feel like they're enjoying themselves, they are perfectly positioned to be mocked and exploited and disgraced. But Noah's sin is not the only sin we see. The second sin is that of his son Ham which we see in verse 22. We see that Ham, and it is again reminded here that he is the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now at first glance, one might ask, so what was the problem here? What did Ham do? I mean, it was Noah who got himself drunk and landed himself in this compromised position and Ham just saw it, but he didn't. Just see it. He saw it and he told his brothers outside. See, Ham was within his own power to solve this problem in such a way that would not dishonor his father. It does not take more than one person to cover up Noah so that he can rest and eventually come to and get himself in a better state. And that is what Ham should have done. He should have solved the problem. You should not have spoken of it, lest he bring dishonor on his father's name. But in the second part of verse 22, we see the offense. Ham goes outside and tells his brothers. He gossips about it. Rather than covering the offense of his father, seeking to preserve his father's honor and good name, he decides to make light of it to his brothers, to make a spectacle of it. He probably came out of that tent and it was something to the effect of, guess what I just saw? It wasn't just a mere telling. He likely would have done it in a mocking and disdainful way. That was the sin of Ham. It was a violation of something we read earlier, the fifth commandment, the duty to pay proper honor and respect to his father. Now, We can think of such a sin in comparison to how parents specifically and figures of lawful authority are generally regarded in our day. And we see what Ham does and the reaction and the cursing that comes from it. And we can think, well, that sounds rather harsh. Because what we see emerge from this sin of Ham is a multi-generational curse, a separation that puts Ham and all of his descendants outside of the people of God. Is that really fair? Just for this? Well, yes, it is. We only ask the question of fairness because we don't think enough of sin. Any one sin, the smallest sin, the so-called white lie or the smallest act of covetousness, whatever those sins that We know we have, but we might not think are such a big deal. Any one of them is sufficient to condemn us to the fires of hell forever. Never mind any temporal miseries that may arise. We saw this earlier in our catechism. All of the things that come from the fall and that come from our sin. We only ask about the fairness of this punishment for sin because we have so received and presumed upon God's grace. We don't feel, we don't experience immediately the wrath of God for our sins, and so we don't expect it. But it is right. It is just. Now compare Ham's action to the response of his other two brothers. When they hear about the situation that Noah is in, they immediately seek to fix it. In fact, they go to great lengths to honor their father, despite the fact that he is in this dishonorable position that he is in because of his own sin. You read, they take the blanket and they walk backwards so that they would not see this dishonor of Noah and that contempt would be stirred up in their hearts as it was in the heart of their brother. See, we don't think nearly enough about what we ought to do to keep ourselves from sin. Shem and Japheth do something to us that sounds kind of strange. Kind of awkward, almost unnecessary. But they do this to keep themselves from sinning against their father and sinning against their father's God. See, Jesus taught us that if the eye causes us to sin, we should pluck it out. If the hand causes us to sin, we should cut it off. It would be better for us to not have these than for sin to have a foothold in our lives. But we live in an age that is antinomian. It is anti-law. It hates obedience to God's Word and God's will. Even Christians in our day, they like to play games in their minds where they want to see how close can they get to lines of sin without crossing over. What we see commended in Scripture is to stay as far away from sin as possible. Now, this does not mean that we will never sin. Remember, Noah was a righteous man, not on his own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. He was a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a believer. Noah was a regenerate man. And yet here he has, for a time, fallen into sin. But we should do whatever we must to not give sin a foothold, an opportunity. Ham sinned against his father and showed contempt for him. And for this, there are grave consequences. And this brings us to our second point. After sin, we come to a sentence in verses 24 through 29. We see that after Noah emerges from his drunken state, he knew what Ham had done to him. We don't know how he finds out if he was still conscious enough in his drunken state that he observed it, or if he was told after the fact. But either way, he knows what happened. And it is here that Noah prophetically pronounces a curse on Canaan, Ham's son. Now we may ask, why the son? Why Canaan? Why not Ham, who had directly done this sinful act? Well, What is happening here is, as I said a moment ago, a multi-generational curse. Ham has already demonstrated by his sin, by his contempt for his father, his contempt of his favored and covenantal lineage as a descendant of Noah, that he does not belong to the people of God. Though he had visibly been a part of the covenant family, the first church after the flood, his heart and his devotion were elsewhere. He was filled with contempt and jealousy and hatred of his father and by his sin, hatred of his father's God. And so Ham's children, with Canaan the firstborn as representative of them all, will carry on Ham's separation from the covenant of grace. We see here in Scripture a truth that we recognize. God works through families. Now there are exceptions. Perhaps you are here and you are the first Christian in your family. if so, praise God for that. We see exceptions in the line of Canaan too, like those Gibeonites we looked at in 1 Samuel a few weeks ago. Now it is also true that those who are of the covenant line and the covenant family break off and separate. They do not have true faith. They go out from us because they are not of us. We see that with Ham. We see that with many other examples as well. Children in godly families, Christian families, that for whatever reason go their own way. But in general, non-Christians produce non-Christian offspring and Christians produce Christian offspring. Grace travels through family lines. But Ham's branch will be largely broken off and burned. We see that Canaan here is cursed in these prophetic words of Noah. He will be a servant of servants, a slave of slaves. He will be the lowest of the low. Now, this is not referring to his earthly state. Many of the Canaanites, many of the other descendants of Ham, they will be great nations. They will be kings, they will be rulers. They will accumulate for themselves land and nations and wealth and culture and civilization. But they will be impoverished and they will be enslaved in the most important way of all. They will not have the knowledge of the Lord. As it regards God's priority of things, they will lack in that which matters most. They will be slaves to sin and they will be separated from God's people. And we also see here blessings for Ham's brothers. We see that Noah next says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. (coughs) Just as in the old world, God had chosen the line of Seth from the descendants of Adam to be the line of promise, the line of the city of God. God is here again choosing through Noah the line of Shem. as the line in which God's people will continue through which Israel will come, and eventually, from whom Christ will come. Eventually, as we see in the coming chapters, from the line of Shem, eventually comes Terah, who is the father of Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. God, by grace, has chosen Shem from among the sons of Noah. We see that Canaan will be Shem's servant, his slave. Canaan will be below them. God's order of things. Verse 27, we also see a blessing given to Japheth. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. So what's that about? It is clear at this point that Shem is the one who is specially blessed. He receives the greatest privileges, but Japheth is also to be blessed. But the nations that come from Japheth, too, will largely live and grow outside of the household of faith. In fact, even most of Shem's descendants will, by the time we're done with Genesis, they will be broken off. By then, God's people will be mostly Israel and his family, one small branch of the much greater family tree of Shem. So what is this blessing for Japheth? What is this about dwelling in the tents of Shem? Well, prophetically, Noah is looking forward to the time of the Gentiles, the church age, the time inaugurated by Christ where after so long of the gospel, of true worship being mostly confined to one line, one nation, one people, the Gentiles, the branches once cut off to use Paul's language from Romans 11, will be grafted back in. While these blessings and curses that Noah gives here have major and long-lasting effects, they are not ultimate. While the wine of Shem is blessed for a time, there comes a time of eventual reconciliation when the gospel goes forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But again, there's a long road ahead. There are millennia, and there is much great sorrow and struggle to come before that glorious truth is realized. Even now, where we are today, it has not come to fullness. It will not come to fullness until the end of this age and the new heavens and the new earth. But now we come to our final point. After the sin of Ham and the sentence given on his line, as well as the blessings to his brothers, we see a separation. And that is what we see in chapter 10. Now at this point, you might be a bit concerned as I am most of the way through the length of a normal sermon with a whole chapter to go. Don't worry, we won't be here for too long. This entire chapter is a list of names and places. It is another genealogy. It is often referred to as the table of nations because we see how the descendants of Noah are distributed among the earth and we may even recognize some of these names because Basically, all these names here are the fathers of nations. What we see here in chapter 10 is basically the carrying out of the sentence. We see the carrying out of the blessings and curses prophetically given through Noah at the end of chapter 9. Now, we don't know who all of these people are. We don't know where all of these nations are. But we do know about some of them. So the list begins with the descendants of Japheth. Now this is notable because Japheth was the last one to be blessed. He was probably the youngest of Noah's sons. So why does Japheth show up first? Well, John Calvin writes, and I think he is correct, that the reason this happens is that Japheth's descendants spread out farther away in the world from the sons of Israel. They're not really the people that... As Moses continues to write this history of the world and narrows it down to the history of Israel, these aren't really the ones that we will be hearing from again. There is a zooming in towards the people of God. Now that is not to say there are not some noticeable names among the descendants of Japheth. One that may stand out is Magog, which is... Not a nation that we know its exact location, but it does come up again in prophetic and apocalyptic texts. So you read Ezekiel, you read Revelation, you'll see Magog mentioned there. Another one that may sound familiar is Tarshish. Tarshish was somewhere in the West, possibly in Spain. You might remember from our study in Jonah last fall that when Jonah tried to escape God, He was boarding a ship for Tarshish. Now it is fascinating that the travels of the Apostle Paul pressed further and further towards these westward lands. And even Paul wrote in Romans that he wanted to go to Spain. We don't know that he ever got there. But you can at least see through these efforts the prophecy of Japheth dwelling in Shem's tents, working itself out through Paul and through the others. Who took the gospel out to these lands where these descendants of Japheth went to dwell? Although many of these other nations we see listed here, we don't know for sure who and where they were. But next, the table treats the descendants of Ham. These would be more familiar to Moses' audience because they would largely reflect Israel's enemies, near and far. Cush is a name associated with a couple areas. One would be the area to Israel's east. It would be Babylon. And another was in Africa in Ethiopia. It may be that these were both descendants of this same Cush or that there was another Cush, but either way, there is some relation there. And then next, the New King James, which I read from says Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt. And some translations say Egypt here. So we see here the father of the Egyptians, who they would also be enemies of God. Now Put and his descendants, they're less prominent. It's often believed that they settled further into Africa, perhaps present-day Libya or Somalia. But then we come to Canaan, the father of the various tribes of the Canaanites. This is obviously very significant when you see who the main enemies of Israel become. Now we see from the sons of Cush, this Nimrod, a mighty hunter. We see something that occurred before when we saw this similar separation in chapter 4. It was among the descendants of Cain. It was among the cursed line where a lot of the culture and civilization building came. We see this Nimrod is a mighty hunter, just as it was the descendants of Cain that became the developers of new technology. So the musicians, the metal metal workers, uh, the farmers, and so forth. We see culture and civilization even developing through the cursed wine. Now we also see that Nimrod has a son, Babel, a name which will figure very prominently in the next chapter. We also see those who would go settle Assyria, another enemy of Israel. We see Sidon, which is a coastal city-state that would also fight with Israel. We see the Philistines. We have seen some of their doings when we looked at 1 Samuel recently. So all of these names, and many of them being the nations that Israel would deal with and fight with throughout the course of their history. But then finally, we see the sons of Shem the line of promise. We see this word Eber, this name, which is actually where the word Hebrew probably comes from. We see the name Uz, of which Job was a descendant. This is why Job is often thought to be one of the oldest books in the Bible. In fact, going forward in chapter 11, we will see the further working out of the descendants of Shem all the way down to Abraham, the father of Israel. So all of this, all these names and families, these lists of nations, show us that God was faithful to carry out his plan, these blessings and curses on those whom he had purposed to bless and curse. God's word was absolute. It came to pass exactly as he gave it to Noah. But sadly, that means for many of these people that would come from these sons, that This nation building, this dispersion would come at the expense of separation from God. All of it tracing back to this one man's sin and rebellion against God after the flood. So what are we to make of this? Well, again, this passage is a solemn warning. We must not trifle with our sin. We should not downplay or dismiss it or think that God is too harsh on it. While we probably, none of us here, would expect to be the parents of many great nations, our sins can have profound consequences on others. Our children, our families, other people, never mind the consequences for ourselves. And so we must strive to put our sin to death and not think lightly of sin. But also in this text, we should see the great grace and mercy of Christ. Now, why is that? Well, just speaking to where we are in the world, geographically and historically, most of us probably are not descendants of Shem, at least not primarily. We're more likely descendants of these other two brothers. And yet, here we are as God's people. The gospel has found its way here. And we have tasted and we have seen it. We are those who dwell in Shem's tent, even without his blood. Because the blood which we do have is the blood of Christ, which was shed so that the promise was not only for Abraham's children, but for those who were far off. The gospel is no longer confined to a particular nation. It goes forth to the ends of the earth promising forgiveness of sins and everlasting life to all who would repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. That is the good news that we see even in Genesis 9 and 10. Those who were far off, those who are under the curse even, may be brought near and know and love and serve and worship their King of kings and Lord of lords and have life in Him. So... May we all love Christ and know Christ and serve Christ and war against sin and war against the flesh in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Though it is in many ways difficult for us as we see sin and its consequences, we see catastrophic implications for the human race that come out of this sin. We pray that because of this, we would recognize the need to not trifle with our sin. We would always be thinking of how we should put our sin to death. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would sanctify us, that we would desire all the more and more to put our sin to death and that we would do so empowered by him. We pray most of all that we would experience and that we would see and that we would proclaim the mercy of Christ to every tribe, tongue, and nation, that you would bring in a great harvest and bring in all the people you have called to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.